Welcome to Style Section, the Wise Guy Podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Sheila. And whew. Well, we got to the whole reason you were excited about this arc. <laughs> and I'll say it, a lot of the reason I was excited about this arc. Uh, but yes, uh, this is a little behind the scenes stuff. You've heard her mention it a couple of times, but Sheila's currently teaching a course on labor history in media. So, this fit right in. Yes, this fit right in. Couldn't have happened at a better time, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, So, yay. It's kind of fantastic, actually. Let's get right into it with All or Nothing. Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. Uh, do you want to start since this is the episode you're obviously focusing most on in the court in the course? Well, um, I don't. Well, I mean, the part that I'm most interested in is the state of the shop. Yeah. Right. Where the, you know, I mean, they have to get. Um, well, they I'll, have this I'll get big deal. Yeah. Uh, no. They, no. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah, okay. uh, so we start off the episode with another one of those scenes set in the uh, uh, set in the offices. All right, uh, we we're gonna get actually some very interesting stuff out of the office because the casual disdain that the FBI has for the union movement is kind of fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah, if you want it, yes, pol- politics. <laughs> oh yes. Well, it's it's yes. very interesting to me because it's like these are the ostensible heroes of the show, and we have learned that what uh, by watching them that they're like yeah you know uh, r- literally referring to anyone trying to organize for worker rights as commie nonsense. Yeah, that was that was Mark. Thanks. Yeah, that was Ma- Mark. Thanks, thanks to Mark. Yeah. You know, and then th- there's uh... oh, you know, <laughs> John Henry yeah. going. They just want a living wage, for heaven's sakes. You yeah. know, I mean... They're really not asking for that much. No, and a safe working environment. Yeah, you put those two things together and you're like, yeah, it's yeah. really not that And in awful. this, the FBI and the corporations are in total agreement. Yeah. A union is commie nonsense. It's kind of fascinating just how awful everybody casually is. And John, who... Um, well, we find out in these two episodes exactly what he's been through. And you kind of get why this kind of politicking stuff doesn't really mean anything to him anymore. Because he's he's been through some stuff, which we'll get to in the next episode. Uh, but the, the play on the ground is that David gets himself a meeting with the buyer for rightware. Uh, don't know if there's, uh, you know, an... Uh, obvious equivalent but essentially it's one of the largest retail clothing sales chains in the entire country yeah and Sears, uh, you know yeah exactly a sears type of situation except focused mainly on clothes so maybe more like jc penny right oh jc penny okay yeah because in the 80s yeah uh and so what happens is carol introduces the two of them because she knows the head buyer and so he goes to talk to the head buyer about at the and I just love that it's called The Medici Show. <laughs> I know. Oh, the designer's called Medici. And if you don't know why that's funny, there's a thing called Italian history that you really need to look into. Because, I mean, you want to talk about the mafia running a country and a church. <laughs> and a church! <laughs> that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's uh, it's literally... Like all of the all of the intrigue and backstabbing and murders and poisoning of Rome continued happening in Italy. And yeah. it was I think it's safe to say at its worst when the Medicis were running things. <laughs> uh, yeah, six of one, the Borgias, the Medicis. The Borgias were pretty bad too. I know, right? <laughs> Six of one, half dozen of another, but those were the medieval popes. Yeah, these were all the medieval popes and the people, you know, running Italy as their own personal piggy banks and fiefdoms. It was yeah. it was a fascinating part of European history, like, absolutely, yeah. but 
Yeah, they're specifically, they call them Medicis because they want you to be thinking about the absolute worst of corruption and thievery and just uh, access in every possible form, you know, that the mob represents. And honestly, that these, that all of these people at the high end of society, because this scene where everybody is in a fancy suit and everybody is, you know, everybody's well-dressed, everybody looks great, everybody's in a fancy suit, and then you come back. And well, who's the next group of people we meet? All of the Asian immigrants working in a sweatshop. Yeah. And it's like, the show draws a one-to-one line to, it's like, all of these unbelievably rich people are allowed to be this unbelievably rich and decadent because they are propped up by the labor that those people are doing. Yes. You know, at the end of the day, and the funny part is, I mean, we'll talk about this more going forward, but the funny part is, it's like, no one has any appreciation for the workers. Like, they honestly, there's this cognitive dissonance in all of these people who don't understand. Like, when they can't get a worker to sew their garment, they get angry. But they don't, once they've got the assignment again, they it goes right out of their heads because they don't understand that, yeah, only because there are people willing to do this work, do you have anything. You yeah. know, you're not sewing the clothes. You're not shipping the clothes. You're not selling the clothes. You know, you are just a middleman. Yeah, well, and th- well, the thing is, though, that at the high end, so Medici is not going to be using one of these sweatshops. No sweatshops. The sweatshops are for the lower level, sort of, quote yep. unquote, the knockoffs. Exactly. <laughs> and and to make clothes to sell at JC Penney's. Yep. And and that's right? the fascinating part because and... you've got the the very high end of society, <laughs> right? Uh saying this is what fashion is, this is how people are supposed to dress. And so then the middle class is supposed to want to buy those things, but they can't afford them because these are all, you know, made a dress will by cost hand. $5, yeah, yeah, they're all made by hand by artisans working in France and as you say a dress will cost $5,000. So the middle class needs something that looks like that. And so it's the lower class's job to create something for the middle class to consume as part of the middle class's attempts to cosplay as the upper class. <laughs> yes, in a time before they used the term, the term cosplay. cosplay. But that's, that's what's going on here. Like, yeah, this no, it one is. episode is the entirety of the class struggle all in one episode. One episode. And what an episode. And the irony of the situation is the only reason they're using these sweatshops and we see and John Henry actually goes to an American sweatshop is the the right wear needs for political reasons, possibly for government, uh, you know, tax breaks and subsidies, but also for marketing purposes. They need to be able to say that the clothes are made in America. Yes. And... This, by the way, that Made in America label that's fallen out of fashion now throughout the 80s and the 90s was the le- uh, led to a giant amount of misery oh, throughout yeah. America and throughout the third world because there was this whole thing of finding islands off the coast of China that America had a claim on and setting up factories there and basically carting in slaves so that you could say it was technically made in America. Oh, it it is yes, and it's so it's but okay, that is the reality, but everything but they were selling this. There's a song by the Oak Ridge Boys called Yeah. My I think my baby is American made. And it <laughs> is a reference to this, right? Yeah. Like, you know, she doesn't get her, you know, you know, and some of her think clothes might be made in Japan or something, but she's American made, right? <laughs> it, it is, it, it, it's, um, yeah, and it came out in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, no, but for that whole thing, right? Like, you didn't buy things made in China. Nope. You had to buy things made in America. They were pushing made things, in America. You know, oh, cars made in Japan. You had to, you know, boycott anything the Japanese were trying to sell us. All of this stuff. Yeah, and it was this huge cultural push. Like, it was this giant meme that everyone <laughs> suffered from at the time. Like, it was everywhere. And, and here, here is where you see B. 
being yeah. made in America what it yep. was like. And so, you know, and the problem is, of course, you know, you have the one guy who's got a wildcat strike going on in his yep. shop. So they have to switch to a different shop mm-hmm. to get things made. And then, you know, John Henry goes to see the shop and that well, is. Oh, but before they walk in, you get this great scene where Eli has brought, uh, you know, quote unquote, the best cutter he has other than his yeah. brother because they need more than one person. In case you're wondering what a cutter is, it's a person who supervises you applying the pattern to bolts of fabric. Yeah. So that they get all of the pieces necessary to sew the dresses. And it's like that is it's very complicated, very detail oriented work. Like it's very difficult to be a cutter. In case you're wondering what they're talking about, that's what they're yes. talking about in this. Scene. And those yes, and those who like me, who made their own clothes, yeah. Right, know what being a cutter entails. And oh, yeah. making sure and making sure that if you have something that's a plaid, for example that the seams match, yeah. right? Like that the plaid match have clashing at the seams. seams and... yeah, you can't have clashing sleeves oh. with the rest of the thing. It's incredibly difficult, time-consuming work. Yes, it it is. And so he's the best cutter. Make but sure it's he has all one done. statement. He'll never cross a picket line. Yes. <laughs> because at the end of the day, he's a worker, right? He might be the best worker in the world, but he's still worker. And he still cares about other workers. He's not part of the owner class, because that's the thing. Even Eli's brother, by virtue of his close relationship with Eli and being part of the family and the company originally being his, thinks of himself as management, even though he just works as a cutter. This guy's like, no, I'm just an employee and I will not screw over other employees. I am not crossing the picket picket line. line. And so John Henry goes in and we see the factory and it is horrific. Oh, wow. And it is, it is, you see the wiring, right? Oh, the exposed wiring. Well, and it's not, and it's just put together because you have so many sewing machines, right? Yeah, you need, well, there are generators working to run, like, because of the bad wiring, there are generators working to run the sewing machines, and there are just tanks of gasoline for the generators just lying around. (laughs) And you see the rats and you see oh, the children because yep. of course they have nowhere to leave their children. No so they bring they them to, to bring work. Children. Yeah. You got this woman sewing a dress with a baby in her lap. Mm-hmm. You got a kid running around to play because she's not quite old enough to start being work, doing things for the factory yet. And she almost falls down an open elevator shaft. Shaft. Yeah. Cause they've forgotten. They didn't put the door yeah. back in when it broke. And well, like, exactly. <sighs> it's, it's shocking, like, and it's not unrealistic because we go straight from this scene to the the important FBI scene we were talking about, where they bring up the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Yeah, and and if you if you see, there is actually, well, if you've got access to PBS and their passport, as they call it, um, you can you can see it easily. It's yeah. part of American experience. There's a documentary on the tri- Triangle Fire. But there is also on YouTube a movie. I think it's also called The Triangle Fire. And okay. it's a, it was a made-for-TV movie from wow. 1979. Well, I watched and, The American um, Experience, but I haven't seen this movie. And the, I can vouch for The American Experience being fantastic. But, uh, yeah, is the movie any good? It's 1979. Okay. Made for TV. So, yes, it is, but, you know, I mean, it it is... It doesn't have the modern production values we might expect. And, yes. And I haven't watched the whole thing yet, so, because I I really wanted to get a hold of the documentary. Of course. And that's not easy to do. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So, yeah, it's... Amazon and PBS PBS decides what it's going to be willing to put on Amazon. Yeah, I guess that's what it comes down to. You know, because I can't get... I mean, there's there's some stuff that was on Netflix two years ago, and PBS has pulled it. So it's not on Netflix anymore. So... And it's nowhere else to be streamed. Ah. Uh, And so, John Henry runs into Joan Chen, the... uh, Who's playing the labor organizer who mm-hmm. wants, you know, who wants to make sure people are getting fair paid and have safe working conditions. Again, surprisingly reason like 
it's insane how reasonable the requests of the union organizers are. But at the same time, you've got the FBI who is, like, down to its bones, suspicious of any union activity. Like, well, they're all commies. Oh, yeah, remember, exactly. remember, Russia hasn't, the USSR hasn't fallen yet. I know, so, right? Yeah, so all of these guys are essentially communist sympathizers because they're talking about helping the workers. So they are immediately hostile to the situation in a way that, you know, John Henry isn't because, again, he's moved beyond this kind of stuff. And he can say it's like, what is the big deal with just giving these people some money? You know? Well, and David, and David, too. Yeah, you know, David, too. Uh, sees, understands what John Henry's saying. John Henry's saying it's cheaper to just fix the, the factory floor. Yeah, than it, it is to be... try and find another person to make your dresses. Like, yeah, trying to find another production house up somewhere on the eastern seaboard, which is where they need it, because that's where the cloth is, and that's where the store's uh, distribution is. Like, yeah. we need it immediately, and it's going to be cheaper to give them what they want than it would be to find another place. But on principle, yeah. Eli, on principle doesn't. Eli doesn't want to do it. You know, it's like it, it, it is it is always and what you see there is what comes becomes even more to the forefront in the 90s and the 2000s. Right. Oh, yeah. This idea of being a self-made man. This is what Eli thinks. Yeah. Well, the myth worked, of the self-made man. Yeah. The myth of the self-made man, you know. Yeah. Um, and he forgets, whereas Max, who won't cross the picket lines, has never forgotten where he came from. Yeah. And. um and how difficult it is. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating. You also get a line about the unions don't when, when they're back at the, uh, at, at the, the office. office, right? And I mean, even the unions that exist don't want to support them. Nope. Right? Like it's, it's like this bizarro world because, well, unionization in America has always been, <sighs> quasi-corrupt so well, much it's of this it weird situation right um basically in the history of american unionization there's there's no nice way to say this um Amer the american government has always turned a blind eye to as much violence at, like as as much violence as owners want to do to union people the government will look the other way and let them do it and so in order to successfully form unions, you needed to surround yourself with guys who were willing to be violent back to the Pinkertons, to the owner class, to the scabs, or else you were never going to get worker rights. You were never going to get the union. You had to have people who were willing to throw firebombs. They're willing to, you know, shoot at cars. You're willing to, as in Madawan, gun people down in the middle of the street. Like you needed that or you were never going to get a union. But the problem is, this led to a situation where, because the mob is really good at doing that, <laughs> yeah, it allowed to, them to be in this position. And the mob wasn't doing it for altruistic reasons. They got a cut of everything. Yeah. You know, they got and we cut. saw that. Yeah. We already saw that in Crime Story. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and you know, and the United Mine Workers yeah. and the all the the unions on the on the seaboards right yep. um and we'll get we'll get into some more of that uh later on as we go through the rest of wise guy but mm -hmm. here it's it's very problematic you know because pinzola as he has made it clear if it happens on on seventh avenue. avenue yeah i control it exactly and that's it and it's the same thing. I mean, you see Hong, who is in charge of these this nightmare. Yeah. Right? Factory, and, you know, yeah. Eli just gives John Henry some extra money and says, you know, hand it off to Hong. Yeah. Who, and he'll sort this out. He'll sort it out. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, it is not a pretty picture. I mean, we don't have to talk about i mean we get some of the personal stuff but this is um it, it was just sort of a nightmare you see the cops yeah you know um threatening the woman with jail 
Mm-hmm. And, um... Well, no, I mean, th- there's literally a scene where they just, like, have yeah. the cops come up, and it's like, you guys work for us, essentially. Saying the cops, mm-hmm. you your job is to, you know, get rid of these union people, so we're free to do, like, essentially, the cops' job is to scare the unions back to work by just throwing everybody in jail, as yeah. need be. And you watch, and you're like, wow... This is a scary depiction, but it's like, again, it's not as bad as it has been. There was a literal, like, the second Civil War happened between, you know, a bunch of striking miners and thousands of private mercenaries. Oh, what's the mountaintop's name? The Battle of Blank Mountain? In the 1920s. Like, there was literally, essentially, a mini-war in America over whether or not mine workers were going to be allowed to unionize. And the mine workers won! but it didn't come without a lot of people getting killed. And so that is like the world that all of these characters are moving in, right? Yeah, it it is it is it the history, the labor history in the United States is just um horrific in yeah. in so many ways. I mean, as much as we don't like uh waterfront, whatever that <laughs> on thing the waterfront. With, on the waterfront with Marlon Brando. Um but there was some truth to it. Oh, yeah. Well, no. And that's the thing is, like, at the end of the day, these uh, these mob guys really did give the whole union movement a bad name. Like, they really did their association. But and this is what we've been talking about earlier. We've been talking about through this whole run of this show. Like, there was literally no one to stand up for unions other than the mafia. Like, the government and the money classes and the police are all against the unions and willing to kill people. And, the yeah, the mafia cuts it, cuts itself in for 25%, but the crazy part is, with the mafia running things and taking 25%, you're still making more money than you did back when there wasn't a union. Yeah. So it's, it's, this, it's, yeah. it's an impossible situation. Yeah, and the union situation in Canada is quite different. Oh, of course. So yeah, yeah. no, no, no. We have, it, it, we have, nah. we have. It's Canada. We have laws in Canada. It's not the United <laughs> States. It's right. not some kind of Ayn Rand, you know, capitalist utopia, utopia nonsense. No, like there are actual laws in Canada. You can't just do whatever if there's a money in it. It's it's a nice place to live as a consequence. A much nicer well, place to live yeah. as a consequence, but not perfect by any means. But, you know, we have... And governments can change laws, but at the federal level... We have labor protections in a way that America simply doesn't. No, simply doesn't. And, um, you know, you you often... But, and then again, we're this socialist, almost communist country to (laughs) Americans. I know. It's so ridiculous. You know. Um, But anyway, let's get back to all or nothing. And it... I mean, it is, it, it is, um, oh, you know, Pinzola is not necessarily happy with this. And then yeah. we also see Carol in this episode. And this is where we finally see that she is somehow or another involved in Ricky's. whatever's going on. Yeah. With, yeah. with, um, Pinzola. Eli and Elrose fashion. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she is all mixed up in all of it, and she's working with uh, with Ricky on his deal. Yep. And we find out, oh, and Ricky tells John Henry to escort a load of fabric from a fabric manufacturer in South Carolina all the way to the uh, to wherever Elrose is having the stuff made into dresses. And he's like, make sure nothing happens to it. And he uh, he defers that to Frank so he can keep working on the union situation. And Frank, when the stuff is parked, sends in like his guys to search the truck and make sure there are no drugs or guns or whatever in it yeah because he's like frank is just like he is stuck on this idea of the mob as well they've got to be moving contraband or people or something it's like this can't just be about dresses yeah and uh that's what that's what will take us into the next episode but uh but before we get yeah yeah uh so we i know all right, so uh, what happens is the way that the, uh, is it Hong? The the way the head, <laughs> the monster, you know, running the uh, sweatshop area, the guy who's in the 
Chinese Hong. mafia. It is Hong. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to remember if that was his name or if I was just being, you know, using the most generic Asian name I could possibly think of. Uh, but no, <laughs> and he's Hung. Hung. Right? That's it. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Thank you. Ha 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 ha. It's very funny. We, we got we our get. joke. <laughs> but what's so fascinating about it is when you watch this episode, you're like, okay, so the way they're depicting this, like, is there's always going to be these guys who are there to collect money from the owners to be brutal to the workers. And so he murders somebody. Uh, he murders one of the workers who's on the side of Joan Chen's labor organizer. Right? Yeah. Oh, that was just... Oh. oh. And as I said, why not? And she's like, why didn't they just murder me? And it's like, because then you're a martyr for the cause. But if they can hurt you and get you quit, and he, they, uh, they tie it back to a story she told about how her parents, who were both intellectuals and artists, uh, were treated during Mao's cultural revolution. And it wasn't well. No. They were horribly and, brutalized. Yeah, and she was so happy to come to America, and then she found this. Yep. <laughs> It wasn't any better. Well, and that's the crazy part is like, uh, you have these people, she's like, we'll flee to America and we'll be safe there. And yeah, you're safer, you know, because uh, up until this point in your life, goons never just showed up at your door looking to murder you with the authority of the state. But now that she's actually trying to fight for workers' rights, that is what's happening to her. Yep. And it's become no better than under the cultural, Re I mean, it is better than the cultural revolution, but it's like, from her point of view, it's not that much better than it was when Mao was running things. Yeah. Which is quite an indictment of uh, the way American businesses run, I would say. Yeah. Well, quite what is what is basically uh, saying is that that socialist power and capitalist power essentially work the same way. Yeah. I think that's true. Like, that's the message of the show is it's like you're not really power is power, whatever. Like when whatever you have power your social people. system, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whatever the political system might be, at the end of the day, all that matters is that people are exploiting other people for whatever reason, and yeah. that's the issue. So yeah, really, really powerful scenes in this episode. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, John Henry sleeps with Joan Chen, and he has a conversation with uh, Frank and their boss about it. And the interesting thing is, we finally get into like. Uh, the, the mindset yes we get it but not only that but like the mindset of and this is the scene i really liked the mindset of an undercover guy and a guy who who goes out and you know makes cases like Vinny does and like john henry does and the fascinating thing about it is it's like you they have the he has this moment of clarity with like you really just how to actually how to, what does he say when you're young you think that doing this job will make you a man and when you're old you think it'll it'll, uh, it'll make you young again yeah and it's like because that's the thing it's not like Vinny and his various women in the series where he was i mean he got you know uh he got um tied up emotionally with susan but that of course started out as a way to leverage himself into the organization uh, yeah. and protect himself within the organization and then he got emotionally connected and it became incredibly complicated and we've already talked about all this whereas here it's not like he had to sleep with this woman to set his cover or anything he did it because he liked being the character he was being yes like he enjoys being this problem solver and this troubleshooter who's working outside the law. He likes the feel of that. And the romantic involvement with this woman is just something that naturally that character that he's playing is, uh, would do. And it leads to, you know, essentially, what's the word? Like, um, like confusion over whether there's a well, real he, you behind. It's the, a, yes, it's yeah. a discordant thing. Yeah. As he said, I love my wife. I love my son. Why isn't that enough? It's fascinating. Like, yeah. it really I mean, is. you, yes, you, I mean, that is the good thing about this because the funny thing is, is that that's not something like they had a chance when Vinny, when, when Ken Wall yeah. was hurt to do something that they couldn't do with Vinny. No. Not yeah, really. Because, well, no, but Vinny hasn't been it. Like you need to show. And that's the fascinating thing about John Henry Raglan's character. He's not just there to be the new Vinny and go through the same beats. 
I'm looking at you, nope. Stephen Bauer, in season four. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. they do. I mean, spoiler alert, it's a lot of the same beats and it's very similar character stuff. Whereas yeah. here, the genius of this John Henry Ragland character is he is Vinny in 15 years. Yeah. He's how Vinny could end up if it goes very badly for Vinny. Yeah. And if Vinny ends up getting married and yeah. because he's already, this is his second marriage. Yeah, exactly. Like his, his first wife couldn't handle the life of this. No. You know? And it's, oh, I mean, it's just such great character scenes. And then we talk about what happened, uh, back in Nevada. Was it Nevada or was it Arizona? Not important. Arizona. Story. Arizona, right? How the essentially, you know, millionaire crooks were faking, essentially faking pyramid uh, natural gas, pyramid scheme stuff around a, na a natural gas mining. Yeah. And a couple of reporters figured it out and they told the FBI and the reporters got killed. Yep. And the bad guys found out they fled with their money to a place with no extradition and the reporters got killed. And he has been locked away in a basement ever since. Uh, and he's just like, I can't do this anymore. John Henry has John been Henry, locked yes. away. John yeah. has been locked himself away in a basement listening to wiretaps and doing, you know, data. <laughs> Entry, you know, data yeah. retrieval and entry ever since because he can't like he couldn't cope he can't go back to it and it's it's a rough thing and all of three of them are still haunted by it because mm -hmm. even his boss and who was there his and frank's boss at the time right who the guy who's yeah. now running ocb was his and frank's boss at the time he was their regional director and so he is he holds himself every bit as responsible for what happens as Frank and John Henry do. And only only Frank doesn't immediately sign off on the idea that he has nightmares and he has trouble coping. Because Frank, you know, I'm not saying he thinks of himself as a machine necessarily. But there is a degree to which Frank uses everything about his office to keep him isolated from the consequences of this stuff. Is that fair to say about Frank? Well, yes, except that he does say. He does eventually, yes. He does say eventually that he, feels it he too. does say, yeah. He does I have admit nightmares to it, too, just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. He does admit to being human eventually. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but like, it's it's you compartmentalize, and he's managed to be able to do it. Yeah, for the most part. For the most part, and I mean, yeah. we we're gonna get into Frank stuff soon enough. Don't worry. Yeah, uh, he is he is a much more layered character. Right. And he gets all the more layered and more interesting the longer the show runs. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, what's so fascinating with this episode, though, is like we we have Joan Chen and, you know, some other people, uh, including Max, being like, you've got like this can't stand. You have to do something about these mafia guys. So she goes and offers to take the buyout. For what she, you know, uh, like, what kind of cash are you going to give me in order to make this strike go away? And they like, here's the fee. And it's like, you can accept the money or you can get killed. Yeah. And Max is taping. And, and Max is taping the whole thing, yeah. which is very nice. Because, again, he at the end of the day, he's on the side of the workers. And I yep. love that about it. Right? At the end of the day, fundamentally, he is for the workers. And so he's not going to let them get away with uh, treating people like this. It's, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. No, it really and is then, amazing. And then Joan, Joan Chen is yeah. more than willing, is, well, gets talked by John Henry into yeah. um, testifying that, testifying. yes, against these two men, because, of course, Frank swoops in and arrests them. Yep. Based on the tape and her testimony. And I mean, it was a nice, that, that sort of nice ending where she says, but what difference is it going to make? And my people are just blah, blah, blah. And, and she gets, she, she comes back from testifying and they're all out there cheering her yeah. and clapping for oh. her. And it was, it's it was so nice. Yeah. And then it was the, the, the kicker at the end of the episode is when you find out that it's only going to be $40,000 to repair the yeah. place. That's yeah. it. All of this, all of this was over $40,000 to repair the place and up their wages for the order. And going forward, it's, it's $40,000 for this job. 
Who cares the amount of money they're dealing with? Yeah, I know. They're, but it's it's a principle. Yeah. It's the Ayn Rang principle, right? Yeah. You never let, you know, a leech. You can never let these leeches take what's yours. Blah, 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 blah. And that's yeah. that's the crazy part of this episode is like the kicker for me when it turns out that it was just such a comparatively tiny amount of money is such a punchline at the end. It's funny because there's, um, I don't know if you saw, uh, you know, the Ocean's Eleven movie, movies. Well, I saw movies. the first one. You saw the first one. Uh, the third one's the best one. Yeah. Right. And there's a great scene in it where, well, I mean, it's a series of scenes. There's a great series of scenes in it where uh, these two brothers have been sent down to Mexico to, like, infiltrate a dice factory. Right. And uh, infiltrate a dice factory because they need, you know, trick dice to make their scam work. And But the only way to do it is to corrupt them at the factory, which will come up actually in this episode we're about to talk about. And, uh, like, the one brother sees how awful the workers are treated and the factory isn't even air conditioned and how awful it is. And so instead of doing the job he's supposed to do, he leads a labor revolt against the managers. <laughs> and the punchline to this... Yeah, in Mexico, right? In Mexico. And, uh, you know, it's it's violence and Molotov cocktails are thrown and people are shooting at each other. And But the punchline to the whole thing, and it's treated as comedy there, where it's just this bleak thing here, is that the whole thing was being done over $80,000. Like, they're all of these ridiculously rich criminals trying to come up with an elaborate scam to bankrupt the fake Donald Trump character. That's who the villain is. Donald Trump is the villain in a lot of movies, in case you wonder. <laughs> it's amazing how many movies fake Donald Trump is the villain of. But anyway, um, the villain is, is uh, you know, explicitly fake Donald Trump is played by Al Pacino, and it's like they're spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars to bankrupt this guy because he screwed over their best friend Elliot Gould in a business deal. And the punchline of the whole thing is that it's eighty thousand dollars. That's it. You know, it's like this giant union movement and hassle over eighty thousand dollars. And that's the same thing you get here, except, of course, treated as drama instead of as comedy. But that's the crazy part. And it's like you say, at the end of the day, it is about the principle for them. It is about all of the money is mine and I will do ev anything I can to never give up any of the money. Like yeah, Any money that I'm not getting is a crime that needs to be dealt with. It's yeah. fascinating. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, that's the end of the episode, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's the end of the episode. And then we move on to where's the money? And as you said, oh. this is the first time that there is a real reason and context for being in the FBI office. Yeah, this is the best FBI office scene, I think, in the entire show. Yes. It's probably the best FBI office scene in the entire show. And it is. It's fantastic. As John Henry's trying to figure out where's, where's the, the money. money. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, he knows Ricky is behind the, like, he knows Ricky and Carol are behind this thing, uh, this move to take over, to destroy Elrose, but he yeah. doesn't know why. Why? He doesn't know, like, as he says over and over again, where's the money? And every suggestion. Frank has, uh, Frank and Mark have with the this thing is, it's just like, okay, well, he takes over businesses. That's just what he does in the garment industry. Like, all of 7th Avenue is people that he has stolen the business of, or is going to steal the business of. And they're like, uh, and John Henry's like, no, like, the, it's not enough money to be worth his time. Like, yeah. he is a, he is a corporate raider, and Elrose is clearing, you know, net $3 million a year is how much actual profit is going to the company. It's like, and that wouldn't, what is it? That wouldn't pay for the blades in his juicer. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That was a, a line I love. I yeah. love that Yeah, line. and of course, yes, we, 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 yes. I was going to say we missed talking about when Frank goes in to uh, confront Penzola. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We miss we miss talking about that, you know. And uh, Penzola says that 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 he's taping everything, and <laughs> so then then you know that these pictures are all fake, and Frank goes to throw something at the picture, right? 
And you're like, and, whoa, 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 yeah, okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. And, 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 you know, yeah. and Frank uh, maybe says, it's gotcha. not as much of a, yeah, you know, maybe it's gotcha. not as much of a fr- the fake as he suggested it was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a good scene. It's a great scene, actually. Actually, yeah. But to get back to but this, But to get back right? to the point. Yeah. And, yeah. and Mark, the punch you line. know, and, and they're all trying, trying to, to figure, figure out, out where the money is. And then, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, John we get, Henry. We get there. He says, uh, as he says, he's an old dog and he looks for old uh, things like, for example, motive. Like, yeah. beyond just profit, does someone actually want Al Rose to fail? And, of course, that's where Carol comes in. Because yeah. she's always, like, she openly despises Eli. That's the thing. She doesn't even hide it well, how much she hates her uncle. And the fact that her uncle turned her her father from you know a business owner and like a man of import into just a guy who worked for him and how she'll never and it's like how he agonized how it made her father agonize over ever having to ask him for money and having to right because he because eli famously paid her way through wharton you know Mm -hmm. and so it's it's kind of huge that and the house and the house they live in and everything like he's he has underwritten their entire lifestyles and as they say he for his part he lives in this giant mansion he lives in this giant mansion on long island and they're in this like uh you know brownstone in flatbush and so how come he gets everything and my father gets nothing from the company that he stole from my father and so he she's like in addition to everything else i'm going to destroy eli and i'm going to make a lot of money doing it and then john henry goes through all the numbers and he figures out where the money is which is if you were to find out and we find out what was happening with the cloth because they stole a bunch uh they you know he pulled a bunch of the dresses that were producing out to try and figure out why the cloth was so important and when they analyze the cloth they find out it doesn't have fire retardant and here's the fun fact if you don't know this about cloth rayon and polyester are incredibly flammable mm-hmm. are incredibly flammable and as he says in the show they basically if you put fire on them turn into napalm well it it happened it happened they found out with like nightgowns but yeah. even when it has the fire retardant on it if yeah. you get say a cigarette ash that's yeah. still a little warm it will actually put holes yeah right and it will it. melt it'll melt the material and that's the difference that's what the fire retardant does instead of bursting into flame the material just melts and looks like you know disgusting melted plastic which is what it is uh (laughs) if you've seen the stuff if you've seen the stuff melt it's pretty uh but so the fire retardant wasn't placed on it and he realizes and we get that great thing with him lighting the dress on fire and it turns into an inferno in one second yeah nice effect there I love the effect. <laughs> it's a great effect. And yes. so what he says is, and quite reasonably, here's the thing. What happens to Rightware's stock if... The minute this the is minute, found. Yeah, the minute this is found out, obviously it's going to plummet. And so he has been short... So Ricky has been short-selling Rightware's stock. Shorting the stock. Shorting the stock. So he's going to make a mint when this happens and at the same time the thing under that, that got all this rolling was that zedmart uh stand in for kmart wants to buy out jc penny and carol is making sure that their stock goes down so that the deal will go through netting her a huge amount of money yep because she will in fees for it get like one or two percent of the thing yeah. 80, but in 80 eight, million yeah, dollars exactly but in an eight billion dollar deal that adds up really fast yeah so she's gonna run away with 80 million dollars all on her own it's it's quite a deal and he's gonna have and of course ricky with his short selling is gonna have a similar kind of windfall like it's mm-hmm. it's gonna go very well for them if they can pull it off and they are able to pull it off because you know the next night a guy, as you said, smoking a cigarette while building. <laughs> yeah, it's always the cigarette. The show the window. Yeah. yeah. While building the show window, right? Smoking a cigarette, accidentally gets his cigarette a little too close, and boom. He, the, the dress goes up, and let's face it, he basically goes up to, he dives out of a plate glass window to get away and breaks his neck when he hits the ground. 
Well, yeah, except that it wasn't that far. Well, yeah, the problem is, like, they should have said he cracked his skull open or the glass yeah. cut him. Like, yeah. the, the stunt is in no way commensurate with what we with, hear no. happen to the guy. Like, I, I, I'm no. sorry, but anybody who watches that goes, this guy should have been able to neck? get up. Yeah, yeah. how did he How the his hell? neck? He, you he know, he was a window two feet. And he was two feet off the ground. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's not a good <laughs> stunt, okay? 100% it's not a good stunt. I'm not going to pretend it is. But we're just talking about the narrative here. We're not talking yeah. about, you know, how the stunt performers <laughs> did. Well, it, it was the right, I mean, yeah. anyway never mind uh, yes no. so it goes up in flames and he dies and it's all on yeah. eli yep because eli is the one who shipped out uh shipped out these dresses oh and by the way we find out that the uh the woman who got paid off to uh the woman who got paid off to give elrose the order at Rightware has mysteriously committed suicide Right after getting a half a million dollar payoff to give the order to Elrose. What a weird coincidence. Uh, yeah, there's there's no loose ends for Ricky Penzola. And, and that's sure the key part. And he makes absolutely sure of it. Yeah. Uh, fantastic character. Just such a great performance by, uh, by Stanley Tucci. And again, the first time we noticed him. And an absolute monster. And this is the episode where everything starts collapsing at once. Like, this is the climax of the story is, like, Eli's business is being destroyed. Uh, like, right away. His business will not survive this. It can't. Like, he's getting sued because he's the one who made the dresses. He didn't check the fabric, because why would he? Obviously, the fabric manufacturer is getting sued as well, but he's the one who made the dresses. He's the one who shipped the dresses. Everybody's getting sued. The FTC, and... the Federal Trade Commission, is going to investigate. And let's face it, he's done some shady things that at once they start looking into his organization, they're not going to like either. So it's like there's this is a complete apocalypse for him, no matter what happens next. And David has found out that Carol is behind all of this. Because, uh, well, and that's, and that's the crazy part. Like, John Henry was following her to find out what she was up to and she sees him having a like go into the gym with uh with rick Penzolo and having yeah. a, you know an, a, an intimate conversation while they're there and you're like oh and so he finds out he tells david david rushes to confront him uh, her and david at this point has essentially it's it's a fantastic performance of ron silver he is just yep. at he can't like he can't believe what is happening like the one thing in his life was that he uh, was that he has this good relationship with his cousin and he never thought he could be betrayed and it is and it is absolutely crushing to him and you watch him spinning out and screaming at her that it's and that's the like saying the key line that it's like if you you talk about how your father was emasculated and humiliated well you know i saw every time he came to the house to ask for something and my father was like, anything you need, just tell me what you want and you have it. And he gave him everything. And he's like, if your father has problems with masculinity, <laughs> take it up with your mother. <laughs> Jesus. I know. It was oh, just like, so whoa. Brutal. Yeah. Well, I mean, David oh. is just, oh, no, I mean, he's yeah. completely destroyed by this. Yeah. And Carol says, but you, but I was going to give you protected. $10 million. Yeah. You could start up your own business. And you too would have been finally free of your father. And he's like, how could you think I would want that? I you know? love my father. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he does. Yeah. And so he goes to see his dad and his dad is, and it, and it's the most vulnerable we have seen Eli yet. He realizes that it's, it's really over. Like it's yeah. actually ending. And he never, like he never believed in his heart. He never believed it would. He always thought he would find a way out of whatever happened because he always had. And it's really ending and he is shattered. And he's like, we'll, I'll, I know what we'll do. We'll just, you can start your own business and I will just advise you and I will set you up with some money, men, and I won't be anywhere near it. And, oh, and it's like, it's, he can only relate to his son through business. Mm-hmm. He can't just say, I love you and I'm sorry and we'll figure this out. Like, the way he wants to make up with his son is by putting him together in his own business. Which, by the way, is exactly what Carol did. Yeah. And what David wants is... 
is justice for something that happened 20 years ago that we never knew about until now. And this is where the episode well, takes we, a turn. Well, we don't find out about it now, though. Yeah, no, this don't, is... Yeah, don't this we is f- where it happens. This is all in... This is all in Where's the Money? That's how crazy this episode okay, is. Okay, okay, okay. Because I was thinking, isn't that in Postcards from nope, Morocco? But it's no, It's here. It's here. David goes to confront Pinzola. Yep. And I'll tell you why. Because this episode yes. has arguably the most wrenching and powerful ending that any yes. episode of the show ever has. When we'll talk about it when we get there. So David goes to confront Ricky. And he, yep. because it's him, he can get in to see Ricky because no one would assume that David was bringing a gun in. And oh, yes, of course. He brings in a gun yes. and he sticks it in Ricky's face and he says, I want, you know, I want everything back. I want my company back. I want my ten, the $10 million my company was worth. And I want you to transfer it to me. And Ricky's like, sure, whatever you want. I'll give me money. Just stop pointing a gun at me. And David's like, I can't trust you. We're sitting here all night with me holding a gun on you. And then we're walking to a bank in the morning and getting the money. And then we meet my favorite character in this entire, um, in this entire arc, Mike Cacciatore. (laughs) His money man. His his consigliere. His his lawyer and money man. Who yeah. is, as I say, the only other person who can open his safe, whose job it is to move the money around. And we meet him and we instantly like him because he, the first time we see him, he is extremely pissed off. <laughs> he is unbelievably pissed off at, uh, at Ricky for like keeping him out of the loop of this stuff or else cause, like he can't be showing up in the middle of the night dealing with gunplay in the office. That's not supposed to be his job. And uh, we even get my, my wonderful lines where it's like uh, when Frank threatens him later and he's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. Everyone assumes once you clear six foot four that you're some kind of a goon. <laughs> I just I, I just love my catchatory. I really enjoy this character. Uh, we never see him again. He's not a, like a going on carrot. It's just it's this tiny bit part who is so like everything about him, you know, right away and all of it's entertaining. I just really, and so he phones up, uh, like they want to figure out what happened. So he phones up Raglan, right, and say, "Your boy is down here. Come and sort this out." But unfortunately, John Henry, who could have defused the situation, is so messed up by cheating on his wife and going back to this whole, like going back to this whole world, that he has gone home to Pittsburgh, right? He has gone home to Pittsburgh to see his wife, and so he is now four hours away yeah. and he can't rush back and talk to David. And then we finally get the story with David and Ricky. And again, the closest thing we ever see to Ricky being human in the entire series, where we go back to the two of them were, they went to school together and they were dealing drugs. And then one night uh, they got into a disagreement with their supplier. Cause Ricky was trying to cheat him and Ricky shot the guy. As he and, said, he was making his bones. Yeah, because you gotta you gotta kill somebody to know that you can become a ma- like they trust you and become a made man. There's ways around it, but there's almost no ways around it. Like he, he had to prove to the commission that he w- could be trusted with his stuff, so he created a situation with a guy that he knew he would have no trouble killing. So he killed this hash dealer, and David freaked out and he ran away. And as he says, for the next. 15 years, I stayed as far away from the garment trade as I possibly could because to be in this the garment trade meant working for you. And I was never going to do that. And as he says, and this is the one human moat we get out of Stanley Tucci in the entire series is he says, why did you make me a part of you getting into the mob? And, And you honestly believe Ricky when he says because you were my best friend and I thought you wanted into this world. This yeah. empire was supposed to be our our empire. empire. And yeah. you're like, that's true. Like <laughs> he's actually being honest and for and straightforward and clear for the first time of this entire character. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, he sits there because David was his yeah. best friend as David far as and I think David probably saw Ricky as his best friend. Absolutely. 
you know, and you know, they love uh, life, know. and they were dealing hash, and they were sticking it to the man, and it's like it was, it was fun, youthful rebellion for David, uh, for David, but it was the what his la- rest of his life was going to be for Ricky, and yeah. David didn't understand that when they were young, but now he does, and at the end of the day. Uh, the problem is Ricky might genuinely like David and at one at one time wanted him to be partners of this organization, but at the end of the day, he's never going to let anything come between him and his money. Yeah, well, particularly after David walked away. <laughs> and so they go down to the bank. And they, they could have been to... here. Here's here's yeah. the thing: they could have been uh, Vinny and Sonny. They really could have. They absolutely could have. Yeah, but David walks him down to the bank at gunpoint, and they walk into the bank, and uh, Ricky distracts David just for a second, and he screams that David has a gun, and he dives behind a desk, and in that moment, David could just surrender, but in that moment, after everything that has happened to his father and his family, he tries to kill Ricky, and the security guards shoot him to death in uh- the most heartbreaking. It was. Oh. You you yeah. honestly, like, when you watch it the first time, you don't believe it's going to happen, but, like, you know there's no clean way out of this for anybody, so it has to happen. And David looks like a criminal, and so David gets shot. I mean, David is a criminal in that moment, and David gets shot, and then John Henry's there, and Frank is there, and John grabs David's gun off the ground, and he smashes... He smashes Ricky's face with it and knocks him to the ground and he's going to execute him right then and there. And Frank talks him out of it. And Frank says, no, we're, you can't do this. You can't go to jail. You can't destroy everything. I'm not going to let you shoot this man here in a bank in front of everybody. And so he relents and Ricky gets to go to the hospital. And everybody finds out that David is dead. And, oh my god, does it get awful from here, because we get the, like I said, one of the roughest scenes that we've ever had, which is John Henry going to tell Carol that David is dead, and that her plan and all of her scheming got him killed. Yeah. Oh. And that's the end, just her screaming in agony that her cousin is dead. And that, like, the person he lo- she loved most in the world is has been killed by her scheme. And yeah. that's the end of the episode. Yeah. It's it's a rough one. Yeah, I know it really is. There There is, it is hard to watch and to take right at the, right to the end because she gets what she deserves. Yep. It, it, it is how she you know and but it is just you know i it it is it is so bizarre this what what she has managed to do well i mean good writing and then but her portrayal oh my god of of all of this throughout this out and this massive hatred of david's father is um is you really buy it yeah. Right, that somehow or another she is that. Um, well, it has become blinkered. a complete, yeah, no, a complete it's, blinkered worldview with this obsession. Like this yeah. obsession has closed her off to everything that was happening around. You know, happening around her. It's it's fascinating. It really is. God, it's mm-hmm. such a good episode. Like it really is such an incredible episode, yeah. and it. I mean. Both of them were stellar this week. Like yeah. both of them were stellar, but like you want to, we always talk about how fast paced Wise Guy is and how quickly it moves through plot. It's not an accident that Sheila thought that the events of this episode take place over two episodes. That's how much story is crammed into just this week, and they cram in all this story while still having time to have these fantastic character scenes with David and Carol and David and Ricky. Yes. And, and I will say that it's also the fault that I went and watched postcards <laughs> from Morocco. I did too. I did too. Okay. Cause how can you not? 
immediately watch Postcard for Morocco after watching the end of this episode. Yeah. You can't go to bed after the end of this episode. <laughs> no, you have to watch Postcards for you Morocco. You have to. And again, it's so bonkers to think that this show was on network television. I know. I know this. It belongs on HBO. Yeah. It belongs on HBO. Just the idea that, like, a network TV show about cops trying to catch criminals ended with this and let people just sit in that for a whole week until they got to see postcards from Morocco. I mean, thank heavens we got to see it the next day because we were watching in reruns. Because <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. No, it's yeah. uh, it's an amazing, like, it is an amazing set of episodes, these two. Because, again, they cram the entire, like, labor versus management experience in America into a single episode. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, and in, then... In all or nothing. And then... More the plot than you've ever seen. The complete crumbling of said American dream by uh, the financial industry. Oh, yeah, all of that stuff where people, uh, you know, all of that stuff where people are, what do you call it? Uh, where people are fighting over who does the labor, who owns the product, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, all of that means nothing to the finance industry. No. To the and... finance industry, <laughs> these are all just numbers on a screen. Mm-hmm. And that's and, what the crazy part is. That's what Ricky tells Carol in their scene. Yeah. That, yeah. like, this thing will ripple outwards and damage I mean, damage things and destroy people in ways you can't possibly imagine. And she will not listen to him. No, no she doesn't listen. And she doesn't but, listen. And, and, and partly she doesn't listen, right? Because... He understands David better than she does. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that, yes, David didn't trust Ricky, but I'm not sure that Ricky wouldn't have given his ten, him his $10 million back after he got to Morocco. He might have. There is a chance. There is you know? a non-zero chance that he would have given David his money back at the end of the day. Yeah. Like, we don't, we can never say for sure. No. Nope. David's long dead at that point, but yeah. yeah, like, it is possible. Except, and of course, Ricky did cause his death. Exactly. Oh, no, of course. You know, he, so, so that's, you know, yes, a non-zero chance, but it's a small. It's a very small, small chance. chance. But just, you know, it is some, well, yeah. And the thing is, had, had David accepted everything that was in the safe, you know, a million and a half in cash and three millions in bearer bonds. Uh-huh. Had he taken that and walked out of the room, there is a chance. That is the more likely option. That had yeah. David accepted that, there is a chance that Ricky would have let him walk away with that. Yeah. And not because, followed up. Yeah, because Ricky is getting out of town. He's, yeah, he's he's going to take his hundred million dollars and leave. Yeah. And if, you know, five million dollars is the price of doing business, he'll pay the five million dollars. And it is to his ex-best friend, so. Yeah, to his ex-best friend. Like, there is, I mean, the $10 million, a bit of a stretch, because he does kill David, get David killed over it. Yeah. But at the same time, he might have just walked away from the $4.5 Just based on what we see between them in these scenes, there's a chance he would have just walked away from that. Like, we can't ever say for sure. If David had just If David had been reasonable at that moment. But David David is feeling just, well, but David has been haunted in the same way. That John Henry and Frank and the boss, who I can never remember, um, his name is, oh, Paul. It's Paul. Paul Beckstead. Um, right? Uh, yeah. I, yeah. For some reason, I have trouble with that character's name in a way that I never do with Daryl Elias. Yeah. <laughs> Daryl Elias is a very memorable character. Uh, but anyway. And Clayton Bartholomew. God, they have great names on this show as well. <laughs> they really do. Just like really memorable, solid names. Clayton Bartholomew. Come on, that's great. Uh, but anyway, uh, in the same way, David has been haunted for 20 years by taking part in the murder of a guy. Yeah. You know? And as he said, like, for years I wanted to believe that you were right and it was self-defense. But, at the, you know, my heart I know that I was, an, I was a party to murder and then covering up a murder. And that's haunted him ever since. And that's why he can't just be reasonable with Ricky because he's yeah. taking out 20 years of bad nightmares on Ricky in that scene. Yeah. 
And we'll talk more about 20 Years of Nightmares next episode as we get to the grand finale of this arc. Which is so much, like... Is this, is, is this, like, two arcs in a row can make the argument for being, like, the roughest arc in the history of the show? Well, this, this is... Well, we're going to talk about rough. the arc in like, review. When we talk about the arc in review, we'll decide, we'll determine that after we finish Postcards from Morocco. Yeah. And so join us back next, uh, here next week for Postcard from Morocco, which is the last episode of the Garment Trade. We're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about the arc in review and overall, like, what the show is doing in its second season. Right. <laughs> and how good it does at what it's doing in the second season. Uh, because, I mean, is it unfair? to say that it's the last good season of Wise Guy? Because there's, like, stuff I love in season three, but, I mean, here's a true fact. Season three has has three arcs in it. And they are, respectively, four episodes, four episodes, and five episodes long. And if you do that math, that's only 13 episodes of television. Huh. Meaning that, all, like, meaning that 40% of the season is filler. Yeah, it was just filler. Forty percent of the season. Yeah, by let's comparison, go fishing. By comparison, this season has Dario for Don Iupo, which isn't actually filler, but will it, you're not going to know why until later. But I'm, I'm going to tell you now, it's not actually filler. It has White Noise and Stairway to Heaven, which are filler, but they're both excellent character episodes. And then it has uh, La Crema de Amore, which is a two-part episode that isn't actually filler because it's, if you you know look at it the right way, the first two episodes of the arc that starts the third season. Yeah, and I think okay. it's to call it that. No, okay. so it's interesting no, no. that it's like, no, no I, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just want to say that it's like, appreciate this while we have it because this is the, mo- like, the first season is the most cohesive season of wise guy and the second season is almost as good yes. it really is almost as good uh especially because they are digging into politics okay. even harder than they did in the first season yeah okay now let us stop because we're next week here. we're doing the yeah we're, we're, we're doing the arc the and then to... then when we get to the end of season two we will have this lengthy discussion conversation about it. it's just I don't Stop know. it now! I am stopping it now. I'm just saying that, like <laughs> watching watching Stairway to Morocco, uh, Stairway. Oh my God, Stairway to Heaven. Postcard from Morocco. Right after this, really, it really puts the arc in focus. Well, because well, and because we watched it, both of us watched yeah. it right away. Yeah, it really does put the arc in yeah. focus, and yeah. that's the last thing I'll say about it today. So okay. next week, for next week, watch Postcard from Morocco, <laughs> and we're going to be back here. For a conversation about Postcard for Morocco, the arc, and the season so far. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if there's any profiling-related fiction you'd like us to check out, drop us a line at profilingcriminalminds at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We are going to... Oh, yes, if you're listening to this on some sort of an app or podcast, be sure to rate and review the show. That's how people find it. We'll see you back here next week. But until then, au revoir. And have a good week. Profiling Criminal Minds is a member of the Kinks Podcasting Network.